Due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12 or those of a sensitive nature should turn off now. Hi and welcome to the Murder Tales Podcast, where we look into the minds and crimes of murderers and serial killers. My name is Chris Britton, and in each episode I'm joined by criminal historian and creator of the Murder Tales series of books, H.M. Lloyd, or as we know, Lloydie. Hello. So first of all, happy Christmas. Yes, happy Christmas one and all. As you're wrapping those last minute panic buys, we decided that we are going to release our Christmas special on Christmas Eve. And to fit with last year's Christmas special, this is another unsolved case. The only difference is, I actually know about this case this time around. <laughs> so we'll be going through the theories a little bit later, but to, sorry, our story actually starts on the 26th of December. To continue with that, I'm going to pass you over to my esteemed colleague, Lloydie. This is a case that all of the evidence is controversial. Everything in this case that could lead to it being solved has been questioned has been second-guessed. Everyone has a different point of view. So nothing in this case is certain. It's like an ever-changing puzzle. We're going to start this story on Christmas Day. It involves a family called the Ramses. Now, the Ramses are a very affluent, a very privileged family. They live in a large mansion house in Boulder, Colorado. John Ramsey was a computer programmer who had made millions developing cutting-edge computer technology. And he had just sold his company to Lockheed Martin. Patsy was his second wife, and she was seen as a trophy wife. In her younger days, she had been a beauty queen and had won numerous beauty pageants. John had children who were grown up who, who lived in a different state, but he had two children with Patsy, Burke, who was nine, and John Bonet, who was six. Patsy lived quite vicariously via John Bonet. She entered her into beauty pageants, now, I don't know if you've seen this sort of thing on TV, but they are effectively like Little Miss World contests where they dress the children up quite provocatively, do full makeup on them, and, you know, they, they strut around and it, they draw a lot of criticism from a lot of quarters. But Jean Benet had been quite successful at these and had won quite a few of them. Now, on Christmas Day, the Ramses had spent the day with a group of family friends called the Whites. So they returned home at 10 p.m., John Ramsey took Jean Benet up to bed. Burke was allowed to stay up a bit later. But the family went to bed quite early because the next day they were going to go to a holiday home and they had a private jet ready that was going to take them there. So at five o'clock on Boxing Day, Patty gets up first. She goes down a, a set of back stairs. She stopped off to clean a bodysuit that John Benet had wore the day before. Patty then goes down a spiral staircase that led to the ground floor. And on the third floor, step from the bottom, she found three pieces of paper which effectively contained a ransom note. Patsy reads the note, becomes hysterical. She runs upstairs to John. They then go to the kitchen where they phone the police. Whilst they're waiting for the police arrive, they phone two sets of family friends and ask them to come round. 
Now, when the police arrive on the scene, they don't act in any way professionally. It's like the Keystone Cops. They make errors that were quite monumental. They don't secure the crime scene. They don't carry out a search of the property. And they don't carry out a substantive interview of the Ramses. They carry out a cursory search of the property, popping their heads in different rooms. But in no way is it thorough. They should have made sure that everyone in the house was kept there. They didn't. They allowed John Ramsey to leave the house. He disappeared for an hour and a half. No one knows where he went. No one knows what he did. But he came back. At around three o'clock, they asked John Ramsey to carry out a search of the property. He goes down to the basement. Now, the police didn't realise that the basement was divided into two. John Ramsey goes into a part of the basement the police hadn't explored, which was the wine cellar. He steps in, and in the darkness, he says, there's John Benet. Puts on the light, and he finds John Benet on the floor, wrapped in a blanket, her hands tied, her mouth gagged, a serious head injury, and a garrote tied around her neck. He picks her up, takes her upstairs, puts her down on on the, the floor of the hallway, He then picks her up again and carries her into the living room. He removes the blanket. He removes the gag. Now, this is effectively destroying any evidence that might have been present there. This should have now been treated as a search murder investigation, but the police seem to lack any urgency here. They didn't interview the Ramses for several weeks. They didn't maintain the crime scene properly. They let dozens of people, neighbours, family, friends, traipse through the house, again, obliterating evidence. Now, the autopsy was carried out, and that has been quite contentious, the results of that autopsy. It discovered that there was a fracture to the skull with quite a large dent in the skull. The garrote around the neck was attributed as the cause of death. They said that a stun gun had been used on Jean Benet's back, probably to subdue her. And they also said that John Bonnet had been sexually assaulted by digital penetration. Now, that effectively means that, that somebody had raped John Bonnet using their, their fingers. So after months of there being no progress, the Boulder police asked one of their most respected detectives to come out of retirement and help with the case. And his name was Lou Smith. And he spent several months working on the case. And what he discovered shocked him. He discovered that the police were obsessionally focusing on the Ramses as being the killers. And they had gone to quite some obscene lengths to try and prove their case. One of the plans they had tried to undertake was to place hidden microphones on John Bonet's gravestone so they could secretly record the family. Lou Smith started to try and point out, well, you're not looking at the evidence properly here. You're not, you're not looking at any po- other possible options here. You, you are blinkered to the point where you're not considering anything else. And he left the investigation disgust. He then went to the Ramsey's lawyers and basically told them that they were in real danger of being charged with the offence. And he felt wrongly. And so they said, well, would you work for us to help prove the Ramsey's innocence? So then he started to be paid by the Ramsey's and he carried out his own investigation and he uncovered quite a lot of evidence that the police had either ignored or missed. At the same time that this was going on, the Ramses wanted to prove their innocence and so they decided to have a lie detector test. They didn't get just anybody to do that lie detector test. They went to the president 
of the Polygraph Association. And he knew that this was a real important piece of evidence in the investigation. So he decided that it needed to be audited to make sure that there could be no questions about the result. And he didn't go to just anybody to get those test results audited. He went to a former assistant director of the CIA who had set up the CIA's polygraph department. And he also went to this chief executive officer of the company that made the polygraph machine. And he asked him to audit the test results. And that polygraph came back with what they said was between a 97 and 98% accuracy rate, stating that the Ramses had not murdered John Bonet. But the Boulder police refused to acknowledge the validity of that test because they said it hadn't been carried out by someone they recognised. I think mainly they would have been more concerned the fact that it wasn't really independent because they had been paid to do that. And mm. whether you get the correct results or not, you're always going to question the data. Mm. Regardless of that, nothing then really happened with the case. The district attorney then decided to take the Ramses to a grand jury. Now, for our British listeners, a grand jury is effectively a, a jury that will listen to the evidence that the police have got and decide whether charges should be brought against the person accused. And the charges were quite vague. They basically said, did John and Patsy either commit the murder or aid and abet who committed the murder? So they were trying to have the cake and eat it. Despite this, the grand jury found in the DA's favour and said that charges should be brought against both John and Patsy. Remarkably, the DA ignored the grand jury's decision and released a press statement that basically lied to the public and said that the grand jury had found no reason to bring charges against the Ramses. And for years, there was a kind of deadlock in the case where nothing really happened. It wasn't until 2003 that something substantial happened, and that's when the new district attorney of Boulder held a press conference when she said that new DNA techniques had allowed the police to test DNA found on John Bonet's knickers and uh, a pair of long johns that she'd been wearing, and that they conclusively proved that the Ramses had had nothing to do with John Bonet's murder. And since that time, no one has ever been charged with John Bonet's murder. The case remains unsolved. But why? Well, exactly. And that's why we have to go back and we have to examine all of the evidence that the police found and why it is all so controversial and why no one can make their minds up about which direction this evidence points. In that case, we'll take a break and we'll investigate that when we come back. Welcome back. Okay, so before the break, Lloyd introduced us to the case of John Benet Ramsey. It does leave a lot of open questions. And as you mentioned at the very top of the show, that this is a very contentious case, more to do with the evidence mm. and how the evidence is interpreted. Yeah. yeah. So we had a production meeting early in the week, and it's the first time that we've disagreed quite ardently about the way the evidence could be interpreted and that that's not really happened before we're normally about on the same page how these things could be interpreted yeah we have very 
we are very small disagreements over some of the interpretation. As, oh. Obviously, when we go back to the Christmas special last year, oh. it was the same again. I have a slightly different theory to you. Yeah, this for me, I, because I, I am quite familiar with this case over the years, I don't know whether I've been led down the garden path. However, a lot to me, the main alternative theory doesn't really fit. Now, whether, whether that's a case of because I am so used to the uh, the wider view of of the events or, or whether I fall into that prejudice of the Ramsey, I think it's very similar to also the mechanics, mm. how, how they uh, were treated. And again, I would say that a lot of it, they didn't really handle well. Exactly. It's very similar to that, about how a family in the middle of a crisis can bring themselves across in completely the wrong way that makes the public actively dislike them. Yeah, so let's start off with Detective Smith on this, because mm. because he's the one whose theory is probably the closest to what you feel is correct. Well, yeah, Smith immediately felt that it wasn't the Ramses who committed the murder. He believed that somebody came into the house and murdered John Benet in the basement. So Smith believed that somebody broke into the house, went up to John Benet's bedroom, took her from her bed, took her down to the basement, sexually assaulted and murdered her, went back up to the kitchen, went to Patsy's office, recovered notepaper, wrote the ransom note, left the ransom note, and then left the property. Okay. So, so okay. So, based upon that theory, how would a perpetrator have broken into? There was a window that led directly into the basement. This had a broken pane of glass in it that John Ramsey had broken months before and had never repaired. Smith quite effectively showed that it was easy to drop down a small drop between the window and uh, a window ledge. Yeah, it's was, like a recess. Yeah, a recess open that window and climb into the basement and drop down. Now, that theory is all well and good, apart from one little thing that people have jumped on and say that it proves it couldn't have happened. It's not just a little thing. When you say little thing, it's it's a little creature which plays a part. Yeah. In the crime scene photos, there is quite clearly a spider's web in the corner of the window frame. Yeah. And this this is where we had the discussion the other day. So there's a couple of things for me over this window. I do agree that somebody could have broken in through that particular entrance. The fact that there was a hole in, in the window pane, they would have been able to reach through that. You could climb through it, and Detective yeah. Smith actually showed that. Uh-huh. But in the corner of the crime scene photo, as you said, is a cobweb. Now, the discussion we had was that cobwebs can be made very, very quickly. So let's put it this way. I used to have one which used to live in the wind mirror in my car, and every single morning there was a new cobweb. So I do understand that it can be done fairly quickly, and 24 hours after the supposed crime, that it would actually appear. The problem I have with it is when you look at it, it's not a new cobweb. It's quite an old cobweb. Yeah, there's, there's dust and there's leaves in it. And debris and likes of that. Now, also, the where that recess is, it's not exactly clean. No, there was. it's winter, there's leaves in it. There's debris, there's a lot of dust and dirt, but there's no footprints, handprints, palm prints, or anything else found in that area. And despite uh, Detective Smith proving that it could have been an access point, you've got to take into consideration those very, very simplistic, natural pieces of evidence which have been missed. They did a reconstruction and they showed, beyond a doubt, that that cobweb would have been destroyed if someone had climbed in through yeah. that window. And that, and that particular window, and again, it's if you go to the size of the window, 
it's actually not a very wide window. And it, however, those who believe the intruder theory do point out that that was only one possible entranceway into the house, that the Ramses believed that they lived in a very low-crime neighbourhood and that they didn't lock their doors. So an intruder could have also gotten in via the front door or the back door. Okay. Again, I don't actually believe that. And despite them saying that, the way that they had dealt with themselves, how conservative they were, they made very, very, particularly OJ Simpson, they were known to have said publicly that they felt as though a murderer got away with a crime, which is a completely different story, but I don't disagree with them on that one. They didn't, they don't come across as being quite liberal and quite loose with their security and given it wasn't a patrolled area it wasn't a gated community and as you said they're quite affluent so there's a lot of expensive property within that house but none of it was taken but we do have multiple witnesses who basically say that the ramses had an open house policy and people would just pop in and the doors would be open and unlocked but in the middle of the night well we can only go with what the Ramses and their friends say. Which is why I it can't really be taken as evidence. We've we've only got hearsay, and it's trying to prove that is the case. Mm. So that's why I, I personally can't. Now, we know from previous cases that a intruder will find a way into that house. I personally don't think that, that is, that's the case. I don't know. Well, but please. let's just say, from this theory point of view, there were multiple access points that an intruder could have used to get into the house. Which I don't disagree with. Okay. But we have, to, we have to find the actual access point. Well, there we go. That's where we stand. The next contentious bit of evidence is that ransom note. It's being described as the war and peace of ransom notes because of its length. Three pages. Mm. I'll read it. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We're a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business but not the country it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want, us, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw 118,000 from your account. 100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining 18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you, make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise that you be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call to arrange an earlier delivery of the money. And hence, and earlier, delivery, crossed out, pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for a proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you do not provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police or FBI, will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You can try and deceive us, but be warned, we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, you stand 100% of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing... You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. 
Victory SPTC. Okay, so let's have a look at the actual letter itself because it's it's written on paper, which was found in a notebook that Patsy owned. Uh-huh. The pen itself was a Sharpie type marker, which they also owned, which was found in the kitchen. Yeah. Now the only fingerprints they found when that was tested was Patsy's. Yes. Though when they actually tested the actual handwriting, they they, they weren't as sure. Uh, it was her handwriting or not. In fact, the experts they sent it to said it wasn't her handwriting, but it wasn't John's. Okay, but the concern I've got here is is more the wording and the length of the actual letter. Because if you think going back to the previous case that we've just finished on the Black Panther, if you remember how that those ransom notes were written, they were done on dynamo tape, but they were very, very brief kind of bullet points. Mm. And that's why they've called this the war and peace of ransom notes. 75% of that ransom note is superfluous. An expert in, in these sort of kidnappings has said that it could have been done in four simple sentences. In fact, the, the, the person who actually reviewed this was Jim Fitzgerald, who is the FBI agent who caught the Unabomber. Yes. Uh, and he was very concerned about the length of it. They did tests and they discovered by getting multiple people to write it out that it would have taken at least. 21 minutes for that letter to be written out. It's a very long length of time. Mm. If you've just gone and kidnapped somebody, or as we know, murdered, you've moved their body to the location where they are going to be discovered. You then go and search the house to have and find that notepad. You go and look for the pen. So we can probably assume there's at least 10, 15 minutes. Not necessarily, because two days before the murder, the Ramses had held an open house where they invited thousands of people from Boulder to come and look at their Christmas decorations. It was a tradition that they did. So a potential sexual deviant who wanted to molest John Bernay could have gone to one of those open houses, could have had a search of the property, could have located the paper, could have located the Sharpie, could have taken samples of that away and could have written the note at their own leisure, and brought it with them that night. It's possible. And I'm not going to disagree with that. I just think that's a bit of a stretch of the imagination, because even given the time, why write that letter and then murder in such a brutal manner? It doesn't fit. Yeah, it looks more like a red herring. And that's how I take it. Now, also the language as well. It's quite infeminate and motherly. The, The opening line, now listen carefully. Now, the FBI did a computer analysis of the letter, And that computer analysis came out with some quite interesting results. It said that there was a 74% chance that it was written by a woman, but also there was a 60% chance it was written by a man. Which then goes with one of the theories that you you mentioned the other day, and I kind of can see that Mm. it might have been dictated to. Yeah, so dictated by a man, but then written by a woman. So a man saying... You need to write something like this, but not telling them verbatim what to say. Yeah. And then the woman using her own maternal, feminine words to write the actual note. It's specifically, there's certain things which contradict each other. Like, if you were a terrorist organization, you're after money. Why would you say you're a small mm. faction? The, the idea of terror and to get somebody to, to do what you want. So by saying it's small foreign faction, you automatically think of foreign faction with likely to be some sort of terrorist organization. 
but to say some small foreign faction, now that kind of downplays it. There's also the, the amount of money. It's, it's a very specific amount. Very, extremely specific. And this is another thing, which is a huge coincidence. £118,000 was the exact bonus John Ramsey had awarded himself that year. So that has led some to postulate the theory that was it somebody he'd done business with who was disgruntled or a disgruntled employee? But then we go back to we respect what you do, but not your country. But later on, it says about the men who are looking after his daughter don't particularly like him. So why is it? It's one or the other. They contradict each other. Which again brings the idea of the note being written by multiple people and the left hand not knowing exactly what the right hand is doing. Yeah, it's it's like one of those uh, games where you write a story and you do each do a paragraph each, hide it, and then somebody else has to take it on and mm. read it at the end. That's that's the feeling I get from it. Now, after that, we go into a lot of pop culture. The bit where they refer to if he looks at a stray dog, she dies. That is pretty much taken verbatim from very famous seventies film, and and it's also it's also been kind of redone in homage in the last couple of years in the Suicide Squad. Uh, but the original was from one of the Dirty Harry films. Uh-huh. And it nearly is verbatim. Uh-huh. And we know that the Ramses were massive popcorn heads. The house's walls were decorated with original movie posters that they'd have framed. So again, some people have used this to point guilt at the Ramses again. The fact that they're popcorn heads, that they've done it, it does, again, sound amateurish. They're trying to make it sound as though it's real. Now, if your only reference are movies... You like to refer to it. The other pop culture reference was probably about a year before, and it's that comment over "Don't grow a brain, John." Now that's from a famous line of a terrorist played by Dennis Hopper in the film Speed. Yes. So to me, it sounds very amateurish, and that's why. Yes, I do think it's a bit. It might be a bit of a red herring, but to me, this kind of fits with the theory of it being planted. And the fact that the murder was either accidental or done by somebody in the family. But let's go back on your evidence for the rest of it, because it was not just a letter, is it? No. We move on now to the autopsy. Now, if you remember, the original autopsy said that John Bonet had received a head injury, but she had died primarily from garroting, uh, that she'd been tasered, and that she'd been sexually assaulted. They, They were the conclusions of the original autopsy. Now... In 2016, a very, very renowned and respected pathologist by the name of Werner Spitz was asked to re-examine the medical evidence. And his conclusions were startlingly different to those of the original autopsy. He concluded that John Bonet had not died of garroting. It had been the head injury that had killed her. And that the garroting had been done post-mortem, almost as a, a sleight of hand, to throw the investigators off what the actual cause of death would be. The stun gun, he came to the conclusion that John Bonet hadn't been stunned using a stun gun, that the marks left on the body were different to what a stun gun would have left, and that it wouldn't have sufficiently subdued her into silence or unconsciousness. It would have done exactly the opposite. He concluded that the marks had most possibly been made by the ends of a train track that Burke Ramsey used to play with. And Dr. Spitz concluded that these marks had been made post-mortem. We then get to the 
evidence of sexual assault. Professor Henry Lee is one of the most respected uh, forensic scientists in America. He looked at the evidence of sexual assault and he came to the conclusion that there had been no sexual assault. Right, the suggestion was there was a very small speck of blood, mm. but there was DNA found back in 2000 and 2003. Sorry. The, the DNA became contentious because of the experiments that Professor Lee did. Now, he wasn't allowed access to the original pair of panties or the original long johns. But what he did do is he went out to his local department store, he bought a pair of children's knickers, and he swapped them for DNA. And he found that there was microscopic traces of DNA on those knickers that had been left on there by whoever had sewn them or packaged them. So he said that that means that the DNA found on those original pair of knickers was evidentially useless because you couldn't be certain that it didn't come from the source at the factory. Yeah, so basically where they found that piece of DNA which ruled out the rand, they didn't confirm whose DNA it was. But then that DNA evidence gets even more complicated because it turns out that there was three separate DNA profiles. One was from a male who isn't related to the Ramses. The other was a mixed trace DNA. So basically two different people's DNA that had been mixed together somehow. So that DNA evidence has been further complicated and there are certain quarters that now say that the DNA evidence is worthless. Would work with the fact that you would get some sort of DNA transfer. At the end of the day, I'm a parent and I know like washing the kids' clothes, folding it up, putting it away, you'll handle it multiple times. Now, that doesn't mean that the mother wouldn't do the same. So it kind of fits with it would be handled multiple times. But the, as you said, quite rightly, there was no evidence to say there was sexual assault. Now, there was another part of evidence which they also questioned, which made out would suggest it might have been done to stage the death. And that was the the way that John Bonet had been tied up. So when you look at the evidence of other kidnappings where, where the victims have been restrained, the rope tends to be fairly tight around the wrists. And on John Bonet's, it wasn't like that at all. She could have actually physically pulled that off if she was had been restrained. The reason why I say this is because if you imagine it, when you see that somebody's been tied up, you see that the hand, the the wrists are very very close together, and that could be by a cable tie or a rope or anything like that. And the idea why they do that is to make it very very difficult for the victim to escape. In John Bonet's case, it was kind of looped over both wrists, but there was a long piece of cord in between it was also wrapped around the outer part of her clothing as well now when you compare to other historic cases again you do this around the actual wrist because you lock it in between the joint and that stops people from escaping so the suggestion that she'd been restrained during the kidnapping attempt is questionable because it could easily be removed yeah it looks again like the garrote like it's smoke and mirrors it's been done to make it look like this as being a kidnapping and restraining, when really it's something else entirely. And as you mentioned about the grot, the grot was used as a key piece of evidence for quite a while. And it was sold as a quite an elaborate murder weapon because of the way the knot had been done. Now, again, if, you are, if you're dealing with a young child and you're an adult, you're easily going to be able to overpower 
that child. And that's why it's seen as being fairly elaborate, isn't it, as a choking method. Also, it's a, a makeshift kind of weapon that they've used. Yeah, it's, it's a piece of rope and a uh, wooden implement that was taken from Patsy's office. Now, the thing that is interesting about this, although there was no other evidence of any other type of rope like this in the Ramsey's home, there was a record that they had made a purchase which was for the exact amount of money that that rope cost. Now, there was no record of what that purchase was. It didn't say you bought... X on X. Let, well, I was going to say, let's get it right. It's a cord as opposed to yeah. a rope because it's more like a packing cord. Mm. Yeah, I've been, I've been referring to it as a, as a, as a rope for, for ease of use, but it's actually more like webbing. When you when you unrolled it, it was used for wrapping and things like that. But this was rolled up, so it resembled a rope. The knot was also it yeah, was not was... the sort of thing that a child would do, but it wasn't professional the way that it would be someone who was nautical or used to tying notes. Yes. Now, this is, again, this is where we had a bit of a discussion over it, about the garrote being the murder weapon uh, or a potential murder weapon. And it's believed that fibres from the clothing that Patsy was wearing on the night of the incident were found within the knot. Again, though, that that is contentious because there hasn't been any proper further independent testing done on that. Yes, and, that, and that's why it is a bone of contention. It does point that way, but again, as as has been mentioned online before now, but again, it, as some do point out, that those fibres could have been passed over quite easily if it was something which had been handled. Uh-huh. But then, obviously, the, but again, it's still a bit of a smoking gun. I wouldn't go that far. So we've, we've obviously mentioned about the grot and the, the taser. But we haven't mentioned the head injury. Yes. So for years, there was no real indication as to what caused this head injury. For many months, there was speculation about that. The first real kind of indication of what might have caused it was thanks to Lou Schmidt. When he discovered a baseball bat in the grounds of the Ramsey's property. And he said that he believed that was the murder weapon. And for many years, people writing about the case have always suggested this discarded baseball bat could have been the murder weapon. That changed, though, in 2016, and that was thanks to Dr. Spitz. He noticed in the scene of crime photos that there was a magalite, so a torch, on the kitchen table. Now, this had always been a contentious issue, this torch, because the Ramses had always denied that it was theirs. The Ramses' eldest son had said, I'd given them a torch very much like that for Christmas. So there was always a grey area over this torch. When Dr. Spitz bought an identical maglite and carried out he discovered that it made an injury identical to the one in John Benet's head. So I think we can now say with almost 100% certainty that the murder weapon was the maglite. We can't say for certain whether it was the one found in the Ramsey's kitchen because that was never forensically tested. No, it does lend itself to being the ideal murder weapon because of the fracture in her skull. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the simulation that they did. It was identical. Yeah, it leaves identical injuries to the ones in, in Jean Benet's head. I mean, if you're thinking about, say, a flashlight or a torch, you, do, you don't think of being quite heavy, unless you're familiar with a maglite. A maglite is bored aluminium. Very heavy. Very heavy, yeah. For, the, for that type of... That's, that's what's called a three-cell um, yeah. maglite. So once you've put the batteries in, you put three heavy batteries in there, it's a hefty weapon. Yeah, it's, it's under, just under a kilogram. Mm. So anybody swinging that, you've got to think... 
when you swing a, a bat or a racket, all the force goes to the end of the object. Mm. So if you think that the force of that maglite, all that energy goes to the very point which is going to make connection, mm -hmm. that is quite a significant weapon to use. Mm -hmm. So this is something that we do agree on, but based upon those findings, it's more likely that the maglite was the actual murderer. A maglite. We can't say for certain it was the one in the Ramsey's home because it wasn't tested. And also it's police issue as well. Yes. However, police issue is five cells. Or six cell. I can't remember. It's longer because they used to use it as a de facto uh, nightstick. Yes. But, so th there's some contention. If it was, then it may have been brought by a third party. So then we have to move on to some of the other extraneous evidence that's, that's around the house. And most of that is in the basement. The most important of these is footprints. Two sets of footprints made by possibly two different people. Two sets by the two different people by the body. And there was a, also a suitcase which had been angled by the window with a footprint on top of it. So it looked like someone had stepped on the suitcase to climb out of the window. These footprints were very defined and they were able to tell the size and the make of ship. From this, they were able to tell that they were adult-sized shoes and that the Ramses had never owned, had never bought any such pair of shoes. Okay, however, to counter that, they didn't actually take evidence or search for those particular shoes. No, they did. The police searched the house. They looked at every single pair of shoes that the Ramses owned. And eventually, many years later, when they got access to the Ramses credit cards and things like that, they were able to see purchases. They could see that regularly shoes were bought. None were ever bought of those makes. You never bought on their credit cards. That's true. They but again, taking the, th the same theory as the Maglite, it might have been a gift. Might. And given the size of the shoe print, this is why they believe that that particular shoe print belonged to Burke. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a culprit. The fact that he had his train set in the in the basement could have just been one of those footprints which were the normal use. I don't see how you can say they were Burke from Burke as a child and wore child shoes when these were quite clearly adult size shoes. And it's because of the size and make of these shoes that we have got one of the potential of the suspects. Okay. There was a comment which was made, I think it was sorry, by their attorney, that this evidence had been discounted. It had been discounted because they questioned the Ramses if they had ever owned or purchased any of these shoes, as you quite rightly mentioned, including their children. And they said, not that we ever knew of. That particular attorney then said, therefore, we believe that because they would know what their children's shoes are, that we don't need to investigate this further. I think this is all part of the confusion that the police and the DA's office inadvertently caused during the chaotic investigation. And that rumours like that circulated that children's footprints had been found things. But we, we, we can be quite certain that they were adult-sized shoe prints. Okay, so we could have a mix of, uh, mixed interpretation of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which, which I'm, I'm, I'm happy to agree or dis mm -hmm. uh, disagree on over that. That's, I think that's a fair assumption. Another piece of important evidence that was right by the shoe prints, by the body, was a spot of algae. There was no trace of it anywhere else in the home. And the belief is it was brought into the house. And again, this algae relates directly to another possible suspect and where they lived because there was traces of algae by 
their home. Okay. So that is something that they've never been able to successfully explain. But is it is it such a unique type of algae which can only be found in one particular area, or is it something which will grow that grows? Is it's very vague. It, it's one small minute patch, just in the basement. No traces of it anywhere else in the house. Which then would be a case of, well, hang on, how would you get it into the basement and not around the rest of the house? Bear in mind, you've got to get, you either go through the window, which we've, we've already said, can't be the entry, entrance point. So it must have gone through the house elsewhere to only appear in that particular location in the, in the basement. It's a bit questionable. Sorry, just going back to the other footprint of the suitcase under the window. Mm. Again, we already know that they couldn't have entered or, or left by that location. So it's the fact to find a suitcase which is sat there is either it's been used by somebody in the family to open the window anyway, or close the window maybe, and it's just been left there. So whether that's actually evidence or not, um, or it's been planted. Now, I'm more likely to think that maybe that that was actually placed there at an earlier date. Another red herring. Yes. The, one of the problems you get with a lot of lot of evidence and a lot of theories when it comes to unsolved crimes is there's the, the such thing as too much evidence. And then you take everything into consideration. Instead of actually using Occam's razor and looking for the facts which actually fit with the crime. So, However, the problem is with that, you then become exactly what the Boulder Police became and blinkered. Yeah, let, let's just quickly explain for a lesson you might not know. Occam's razor essentially says the simplest answer is usually the correct answer. Or to use our favourite detective analogy. When you've eliminated the improbable, whatever remains, however impossible, must be the truth. Yes. And I think that's the perfect place to leave it for today. Given the length of this case, we're going to be back for the second part on New Year's Eve. So for now, if you have any questions, concerns or feedback, you can get in contact with us by going to at Murder Tales Pod, or you can get in contact with Lloydie directly on at Lloyd one We'll see you on New Year's Eve, but until then, we really do hope you have a very, very happy Christmas. If you enjoyed the show, please go onto iTunes and leave us a lovely five-star review. And even better, click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Mother Tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by H.N. Lloyd. If you'd like to get your hands onto them, you can click on the Amazon link on our Twitter page. This show was presented, edited, and produced by Chris Britton. It was created, written, and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Mother Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod Casting Network. You can check out our other shows, such as the Pub Politics podcast, or even the Tragical History Tour. All you have to do is go and search on your favourite podcast provider.